0: The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome to this edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thanks for joining us. Follow us online at danproftshow.com and on social media at Dan Proft Show, Facebook and Twitter. Also, at Dan Proft is another account you can follow with uh, musings and articles and all kinds of good stuff. Uh, Insights from the experts that you hear on our program. Yesterday's briefing, a Monday evening's briefing with President Trump, there was uh, some significant discussion of the antivirals, particularly hydroxychloroquine, which begins trials in New York today, as the president explained.
3: At my direction, the federal government is working to help obtain large quantities of Chloroquine, and uh, you can look from any standpoint. Tomorrow, in New York, we think tomorrow pretty early. The hydroxychloroquine and uh, the z I think, is a combination. Probably, is looking very, very good, and it's going to be distributed. We have uh, 10,000 units going, and it'll be uh, distributed tomorrow. Uh, it'll be available uh, and is now they already have it. They're going to distribute it tomorrow morning to a lot of people in New York City and
2: New York. And President Trump mentioned uh, the Florida man who was uh, diagnosed with coronavirus uh, was on oxygen in the ICU in at a regional hospital in South Florida and recovered after taking hydroxychloroquine. The 52 uh, year old telling a uh, local Fox affiliate, I was at the point where I was barely able to speak and breathing was very challenging I really thought my end was there. Then a friend sent him an article about hydroxychloroquine, and he contacted the person infected, contacted an infectious disease doctor about the drug. He agreed, authorized the use of of it. 30 minutes later, the nurse gave it to me, he said. About an hour after taking the pills, it felt like his heart was beating out of his chest, and about two hours later, he had another episode where he couldn't breathe. He says he was then given Benadryl and some other drugs, and that when he woke up around... Uh, early in the morning, Uh, it was like nothing ever happened. He has since had no fever or pain and can breathe again. His doctors, according to the patients, uh, believe the episodes he experienced were not a reaction to the hydroxychloroquine, but his body fighting off the virus. So there's the hydroxychloroquine and the z that Trump was talking about. He also mentioned remdesivir, which is the drug that was created with the idea of combating Ebola, didn't test out for Ebola, but it may hold some promise for COVID-19 per two patients in Washington state who were given the drug and uh, fully recovered after being severely ill. Back to uh, hydroxychloroquine just for a second. Actor Daniel Day Kim, who is on the uh, relaunch of Hawaii Five-O, he sent a message to uh, Dr. Tony Fauci at CDC. Here's what I consider to be the secret weapon, hydroxychloroquine. This is a common antimalarial drug that has been used with great success in Korea, in their fight against the coronavirus. And yes, this is the drug that the president mentioned the other day. He was uh, treated, uh, Daniel Day Kim, with uh, HCQ, so you don't have to say hydroxychloroquine all the time. HCQ is easier, uh, and uh, wanted to uh, weigh in on the topic as well. For more on this, both the discussions of the personal protective equipment that frontline healthcare workers need. And that that piece of, of uh, these briefings and uh, the state of affairs, particularly in those most heavily impacted states of New York, Washington, and California, as well as these p- potential antiviral treatments, we're pleased to be joined by Amy Anderson. She's an RN. She's a former Heritage Foundation graduate fellow. She's also the founder of Global Nurse Consultants Alliance, and she's an assistant professor of nursing at TCU and the University of North Texas. Amy, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it.
4: Hi, thanks for having me.
2: So are you um, uh, surprised at, uh, uh, or or perhaps maybe a better way to ask, similarly optimistic about the uh, potential upside of uh, HCQ as well as remdesivir as antivirals for this uh, virus?
4: Yes, actually I am. And before we get started talking about that, I just wanted to let our listeners know that the Heritage Foundation has set up a specific area of the website related to coronavirus, and that can be accessed at www.heritage.org forward slash coronavirus. Okay. Of course, we're all looking for any kind of treatment that will help individuals that are certainly with severe illness or even something that would treat prophylactically or prevent um, severe illness. So all of these uh, anecdotal, the anecdotal information that's coming out is really um, hopeful, and we're all you know, watching very carefully the data and what's happening.
2: And uh, uh, Dr. Deborah Burke said something at the uh, Monday evening briefing that I thought was uh, important too because of some of the finger pointing that's gone on with respect to testing and the, the speed at which uh, testing kits got out and, and were processed and so forth, uh, as well as the, uh, the levels of personal, protect- protect- personal protective equipment available around the nation. She basically said, hey, look um, – We didn't conceive, we meaning the infectious disease experts in this country, didn't conceive of a respiratory illness on the scale of a COVID-19 occurring at the same time as your seasonal flu virus. And she didn't say it this way, but she essentially said this is why we're we're caught a little flat footed. This is why we don't have the supplies and the infrastructure uh, on the testing piece that uh, we wish we would have had to combat this.
4: So I think no uh, two pandemics would be alike and how a virus acts on an individual's body is going to vary based upon the virus. So I think it would be difficult for anyone to know exactly all of the supplies that will be needed and how many would be needed in this case. And so, you know, I, I'm hopeful that they can, you know, move quickly to get, all of the, the supplies that are necessary from both to the private sector as well as the strategic national supply, and get it to the front line, where our nurses and our doctors and our other healthcare professionals um, are working tirelessly to help uh, people. Um, and I think it's really, you know, important for the public to know that if they have these items, they really do need to donate them to their local hospitals, especially in these hotspot areas where they're going through masks and gloves and. Things like that very very quickly.
2: As you talk to your colleagues in the nursing profession, the medical profession generally speaking, um, does it make sense that uh, FEMA is acting as the clearinghouse um, and uh, for both for for government officials, of course, for governors in particular, but uh, as uh, the clearinghouse for those uh, supplies that we're discussing?
4: Well, I mean that's how our emergency response system is um, has been created, and so you've got a, the government uh, section. Where they're, you know, using FEMA as well as the strategic national stockpile, but that's also why uh, President Trump was saying the governors need to work through their, you know, and hospitals need to work through their normal uh, buying channels to ensure that they're getting as many things as they can through the private sector as well, because the national st- stockpile, you know, is intended for emergencies and can't um, entirely take care of the issue of ensuring that everyone has what they need. So we've got to have business, private, working on. You know, increasing and ramping up manufacturing so that we have those items.
2: What about uh, personnel shortage? I mean, there was a nursing shortage in this country before the COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, how is that playing out uh, during this pandemic?
4: Well, many of the governors and mayors and uh, have asked for volunteers. Um, there is a place to volunteer through the Health and Human Services from a, a nationwide perspective. So, this, uh, some some states have activated that so that they can, you know, start checking licenses that sort of thing uh, prior to potentially individuals being needed. Um, But certainly each state will do that a little bit differently. Um, And so if you're interested in volunteering, I would look at the state level to determine what you can and can't do.
2: With respect to uh, one of the things that's been touted uh, quite a bit of late, the telehealth screening and consultations with doctors, it, it seems to me that it's important to recognize the limitations of this. It's nice to have that technological innovation and that tool but it's not a panacea. I mean, there's there's only so much that you can do telehealth. So there has to be a recognition among the, po- the, the body politic for in the interest of healthcare providers and getting the resources they need that you've got to be able to see patients face to face for a range of uh, consultations and services.
4: I think that's certainly true, that there are certain things that would require that face-to-face interaction, but really what telehealth is doing is sort of force multiplying and expanding the ability of our professionals to work quickly and with more patients who have issues that don't require that face-to-face interaction, Um, and people are a lot more comfortable right now not being face-to-face with someone. And so telehealth really does help um, them to answer questions and sort of give information and review issues or you know prescribe medications that are have been used by the patient before uh, for chronic illness or things like that so and it's really just an expansion of their abilities
2: and that uh, that testing innovation that Mike Pence mentioned at the Monday briefing where people can do the, the, the self-test, the self-swab and stuff, that's got to be a, uh, something that's an encouraging development for nurses and medical professionals too.
4: Oh, absolutely. I think anytime that you've got something that can be done at home and, and really get results more quickly than what we, what we have been seeing, um, that will really change our, our testing capabilities and then the information that we have and the data we have about how many people really do have this and what's the spread of it in our country.
2: She is Amy Anderson. She's a registered nurse. She's a former Heritage Foundation graduate fellow. And again, she mentioned Heritage Foundation has a resource site up, heritage.org slash coronavirus. She's also the founder of Global Nurse Consultants Alliance and assistant professor of nursing at TCU and the University of North Texas. The Mean Green, Amy Anderson, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank
4: you.
0: Head seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We uh, were speaking last segment with a registered nurse and nursing professor, Amy Anderson. And I mentioned uh, some of the comments from Dr. Deborah Burks at President Trump's Monday night coronavirus task force briefing. And I wanted to go back to that, to both what she said about pandemic preparedness, that is certainly relevant. This is going to be glossed over by the DC press corps because it distributes. The lack of foresight beyond president trump and of course they just want to lay it all at president trump in addition to that something that uh, dr burks said about those scary projections from those at least initially were virtually data-free models some bumping up uh, against those models to reality first uh, dr burks on pandemic preparedness
5: you know if you look at the pandemic flu preparedness all of this was built on a flu platform it was never ever thought that you'd have a simultaneous respiratory disease hitting at exactly the same time as your flu hits in the country.
2: So again, they didn't foresee that you would have a virus like COVID-19 visit at the same time you have your regular flu season which what is projected to claim 50,000 lives. It's just important because these are the experts on infectious disease some of the best in the world most respected in the world and i'm not denigrating them I'm not denigrating tony fauci i'm not denigrating deborah burks their work on aids viruses and so many others over the years i'm just saying they didn't make the recommendations didn't bang the drum for changing the way that we can do testing for particular viruses changing the supplies that should be at the ready whether housed at federal facilities or distributed among state and local facilities, all the personal protective equipment we're now discussing, they didn't foresee that they didn't advocate for that either, not blaming them, saying that some things are unforeseeable, and then you have to do the best you can in real time to make the adjustments on the fly to address the problems that have presented themselves. The other important point that Burks made at that Monday night briefing about those models, as I suggested.
5: Do you see a lot of numbers out there? About 70% of the population is going to get infected or 60% of the population based on those models. Understand that the way you get to that number is you do nothing and it goes through three cycles. So they're talking about this cycle that we're currently in, another cycle in 2021, and a third cycle in 2122, in order to get that level of population infected. And you know we will have vaccines most likely by the 21-22 season. And we're going to hopefully have therapeutics in the fall of the next season. So the reason we're so much focused on blunting the curve for this piece is if, if the virus comes back, we'll have much more facility both for diagnosis, testing, monoclonal antibodies, treatments, and then the vaccine.
2: So the people running around suggesting end days... Based on models with the underlying premises not fully understood and certainly not disclosed, not reported properly, the way you get to those numbers that were bandied about recklessly over the last couple of weeks, the Imperial College London study, other such models that suggested the numbers that Dr. Burks mentioned do nothing for three years. Is that what we've done? What have we done in the last 30 days? In the last 10 days? It's just irresponsible panic mongering. And by the way, what Dr. Burks mentions, not consistent with those models, at least not if you start to introduce the evasive actions that have been taken, is the reality of the trajectory of the spread. A Nobel Prize laureate in chemistry named Michael Levitt, he had a piece, Jerusalem Post posted uh, some of his comments a couple of days ago saying, I'm not an influenza expert, but I can analyze numbers. And he looked at uh, the uh, infection in Wuhan, in the Hubei province in China. Had the growth continued at its initial rate, the rate of infection of the virus in Hubei province increased by 30% each day. That's a scary stat. And he said, look, had that had that growth, rate, had the growth continued at that rate, the whole world would have been infected in 90 days. But the pattern changed. On February 1, when he first looked at the stats, Hubei province had 1,800 new cases a day, Five days later, that number had reached 4,700 new cases. But the next day, something changed. The number of new infections started to drop linearly and did not stop. A week later, the same happened with the number of deaths. The dramatic change in the curve marked the median point and enabled better prediction of when the pandemic will end. Based on that, he concluded the situation in China would improve within two weeks, and indeed, that's exactly what happened, at least according to the data that's available. He uh, likened it, did uh, Michael Levitt, to uh, the trend to to diminishing interest rates. If a person receives 30 percent interest on their savings on day one, 29 percent on day two and so on, you understand that eventually you will not earn very much. Similarly, although new cases are being reported in China, they represent a fraction of those reported in the early stage. He uh, explained the reason for the slowdown is due to the fact that exponential models assume that people with the virus will continue to infect each other or infect others, I should say, at a steady rate. In the early phase of COVID-19, that rate was 2.2 people a day on average. In exponential growth models, you assume that new people can be infected every day because you keep meeting new people. Is that really how human beings interact? If you consider your own social circle, you basically meet the same people every day. You can meet new people on public transportation, for example, but... Even on the bus, after some time, most passengers will either be infected or immune. And this is not him dismissing the concerns or the evasive actions taken. It's him projecting the data, you know, using real-world data and projecting the spread. Uh, similarly, this piece uh, over the weekend at Medium.com by Aaron Ginn, that was then taken off Medium.com and reposted by Zero Hedge because it didn't fit with the uh, panic-mongering narrative, Aaron Ginn, who's uh, most known in Silicon Valley, specializing in driving rapid and viral adoption of technology products, did his own data analysis, and it's consistent with what uh, the chemistry Nobel laureate had to say. He also talks about the data that we don't have, we don't readily have on a daily basis, that we lack. We just get, uh, as I lamented yesterday, we mainly just get the number of cases and the number of deaths, we don't get conversion rates. We don't get growth rate. We don't get severity. We just get the ticker, and it's misleading. We don't get, we talk about uh, how it's proceeding in America versus other countries, but we're not looking at that on a per capita basis. If you do that, at the writing of this piece that's uh, posted at Zero Hedge, uh, total cases per million population, for as much as South Korea has uh, been lauded as an example, or Germany, now this is half the number of cases we have now, but at that time, 59 cases Per million in the United States versus 172 in South Korea versus 237 in Germany. And the point is to say, even if those changes and the the ratio U.S. to other countries changes, you should be looking at it through that lens. You should be looking at it in that way so you're properly assessing the data. For the other thing that people don't have any appreciation for because the social distancing, there's no contextual information or it's lacking. World Health Organization released a study on how China responded to COVID-19. One of the most exhaustive piece that has been published on how the virus spreads. In that report, if you come in contact with someone who tests positive for COVID-19, you only have a 1% to 5% chance of catching it as well. The variability is large because the infection is based on the type of contact and how long. It's not any old contact for any time. It's the type and how long. The majority of viral infections have come from prolonged exposure and confined spaces with other infected individuals. I mean, this layered information that gives you a more accurate picture seems important, and it's largely been lost in the reporting, and it probably, Burke's statements uh, Monday evening's briefing will probably, will probably largely be lost in the reporting as well, but not on this show. I'm Dan Proff. Oh,
0: baby, baby, it's a wild world. You're listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Tyler Cohen writing in Bloomberg. Tyler Cohen, econ professor at George Mason. The coronavirus killed the progressive left. When uh, was the last time you heard Greta Thunberg's name, for example? Mm -hmm. The notion of very open international borders will seem strange and indeed intolerable uh, after COVID-19. The egalitarianism of the progressive left will also seem like a faint memory. Elites are most likely to support wealth distribution when they feel comfortable themselves. And in dead, well-off coastal elites in California and the Northeast are the backbone of the progressive movement. But when they're threatened... Hmm. not so ready to tell you how to live your life when redistribution of their resources also on the table case for mass transit will seem weaker. A massive, the you know, massive dose of fiscal policy has now been another progressive priority, but there's general agreement on that. They're sort of arguing over the price as it's happening on the Hill right now, 1.8 trillion versus 2.5 trillion. Um, And I just mentioned uh, Greta Thunberg and the whole the world's going to end in 12 years because uh, uh, you eat a hamburger crowd. Uh, They have uh, been sort of shut down as uh, a luxury we can't afford in these times, indulging the children, regardless of age, the children in terms of their intellectual output. Uh, And uh, going back to the Hill, uh, it's interesting because uh, what Tyler Cohen says may turn out to be true. But uh, there is great resistance from the resistance, isn't there? With House Majority Whip Jim Clyburn saying that uh, COVID-19 provides a, quote, tremendous opportunity to restructure things to fit our vision. That's exactly what they're trying to do per Nancy Pelosi's $2.5 trillion holdup, which includes $35 million to the Kennedy Center, $23 million to Howard University. Uh, any business who obtains a loan has to provide permanent paid leave and a $15 minimum wage. Publicly traded companies have to provide stats on gender, race, and ethnic identity of their board members. Airlines have to offset their carbon emissions and publish CO2 emissions for each flight when they're barely flying right now. Sort of tone deaf. And it got uh, Wyoming Senator Dr. Slash, uh, well, Dr. Slash Senator John Barrasso a bit up in arms during the debate yesterday.
0: We need to vote today again and again and again until we provide the relief the rescue that the American people need. That's why we have a dozen Republicans on this side ready to speak, standing at podiums, ready to speak. And you don't right now have even a single Democrat on the floor to defend their position because it is indefensible. That's where we are. We had Nancy Pelosi flying back from California because she sent the house home a week ago. They're not here. The labor special interests. We're here trying to fight for the man and woman on the street in our hometowns, and yet they're fighting for the Green New Deal.
2: He's given that podium quite a workout, too, is Dr. Senator John Barrasso. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by our friend Amity Schlaes. She is the board chair of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation. Winner of the Hayek Prize and best-selling author of The Forgotten Man, A New History of the Great Depression. Boy, that seems more relevant than ever. And Great Society, A New History. And that seems more relevant than ever. Amity Schlaes, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
6: Oh, I'm always glad to be with you.
2: So um, what's your reaction to um, the back and forth on the Hill between, uh, between Pelosi and uh, Senate Republicans?
6: Well, I... I... I mean you might be right and Tyler Cohen might be right that the progressive left is going to fade but actually the agenda of uh, both parties is kind of progressive left you know if if Nancy if Congresswoman Pelosi has new deal the Republicans have new deal light in the Senate that's why Senator McConnell said hold your nose and vote for it so um I you know I I think that we should say, well, this bill's going to be what it's going to be. What are we going to do in future for the next crisis so we handle this better? That's my main thought. And You know, a lot of us are kind of kicking ourselves that we didn't give clearer advice in 2008 because it's just a replay of 2008, and that didn't work too well.
2: When we come back, I want to pick up right there, talk more about the effects of the uh, Obama 2008 stimulus package. Steve Moore and Art Laffer had an op-ed on the topic in the Wall Street Journal earlier this week and more. Uh, We're speaking with Amity Schlaes, board chair of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation. We'll have more with Amity right after this.
0: And takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Amity Schlay's board chair of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation. Uh, I want to go back to your point about this pandemic and the uh, response to it economically becoming a replay of the economic response to the 2008 financial crisis. Steve Moore and Art Laffer had an op-ed in the Journal a couple days ago. Only about 15% of the money in the uh, $830 billion American Recovery and Reinvestment Act uh, was actually used for roads, bridges, and other infrastructure projects. More than twice as much went to all the transfer, wealth transfer programs. And the result was that uh, two years after the stimulus, the unemployment rate was still 9%.
6: Yes. I, I, I want to say to your listeners and, and to ourselves, this doesn't have to be. There is economics that is credible and was credible in the history of the world that says stimulus is not the answer in a crisis. It, liquidity might be necessary some days. Badge But but. let's um, say, you know, what do you do in a crisis? Let's ask, and here is what America did in the past. Often it would uh, step back and leave room for the market to pick up the trouble and fix it. That's actually what happened in U.S. history. Uh, The reason I'm the chairman of the Coolidge Foundation is that Calvin Coolidge – knew how to go through a a crisis. I like him a lot. And uh, he went through five crises as an adult. The market would plunge down, something like it's plunging now. And then the market would pick itself back up and come back. Uh, Why did that recipe work? Real mainstream economists up till 1945 or so had explanations, and it gets at what you're both saying. The government is a rotten investor. It will invest in, I don't know, solar panels as part of the recovery. It will invest in, uh, um, as we saw with 2008, a lot of projects that sound nice, Green New Deal, but aren't directly economics. They're just social agenda um, dressed up as economics. You don't have to do that. I I really wonder, Dan, what would happen to the S&P futures or would have happened this morning if Congress had agreed that it would cut permanently the capital gains tax to 10 percent from 20 plus a surcharge? Every one of us, even the Marxists, will acknowledge that the Dow futures would have shot up and that the market would have gone up this morning. Why? Because foreigners are waiting to jump into the United States market. They're on their heels trying to get the low. Uh, we, But we, we don't do something like that. You know, that that's, oh, God, that would offend people because it sounds like a gift to the rich to cut the capital gains tax, which is the tax when you buy and sell, for example, a stock you know, on the profit there. That's crazy. Um, I mean, we need a reset and say, look, everyone, you know, Tyler was right again. I mean, everyone is looking to the private sector to fix this problem. We're not looking for the NIH alone or the FDA to produce the vaccine. We're looking for companies that realize capital gains to produce the vaccine. They're in an international contest. Big Pharma doesn't seem to be the enemy at this moment, does it? We're looking um, for uh, the market to go up because we want to see U.S. growth. Well, that's capitalist, too. That's what's going to save us once we're past the, the, you know, both in the virus part and in the market part. The second idea we've had uh, before is to create some kind of IRA, like a 401K or an IRA for every American, and put $1,000 in there. along with a thousand dollars we're handing out is quote unquote stimulus, which people are supposed to spend. And I guess what? We all bet they won't because people are cautious. People have brains and a lot of them are going to begin to save for hard times. So, so what if some of the money Americans got while they're in quarantine, hating themselves, looking at their television, or, you know, going through Netflix, what if they got an account, uh, uh, an account and could pick the Indexes they were going to buy themselves. Well, that would be very different. Many Americans long to be in the market and are envious of people who are. And um, I don't think that's a crazy idea. It, that is, in what do we have a stake? Do we have a stake in government or do we have a stake in markets? One of the worst things about 2008 is that we rescued the big people and hurt the little people. Yes, yes we did. Yeah. Um, so, So I want to mention that. And you're going to say, well, Amity, that could never pass. Amity, look, even the generous lefty package that the Senate put through isn't passing and the answer is that's because our discussion is too narrow you can't have this discussion in the middle of a crisis if the republicans never dare say cut the cap gains tax no one's going to heed them when they try it in a crisis right um, but uh... but it may be that because uh, because the left progressive left is in suspension in shock that this is also a market's opportunity for us to reset the united states and sound more pro-market be more pro-market you know, admit the reality, the market is going to save us, not the government.
2: The problem is, of course, uh, Silent Cal, who I'm a big fan of as well, didn't live in the TV age. And when you have daily briefings on a pandemic, you can't say nothing. You have to be seen as doing something Uh, or you use that opportunity to explain basic uh, market economics the way that you just did and what makes sense and why restraint is often the better part of valor when it comes to government interventions and tinkering, but it's all All the incentives, though, all of the incentives are to mobilize the resources and the power that you have to be seen as doing something, even if it's the wrong thing, because you'll get high marks for being seen as doing something. There is no in in, particular in our culture where we want instantaneous solutions to Uh, sort of the intractable problems of the human condition, there is no incentive to exercise any restraint to be disciplined whatsoever.
6: The lawmakers have been telling us a little bedtime story that stimulus will always work. And the market, this is an important moment. The market so far has been telling them not really.
2: Yeah, right. right? It's true.
6: The market, so it might be the, Keynes, this is the philosophy of John Maynard Keynes, uh, the U.K. economist who believed in fiscal stimulus. Um, and also in monetary stimulus, if the interest rate is where it's at and we're, the stock market still isn't roaring up, then, then uh, this may be Keynes's last gasp, friends. Uh, that is, the Keynesian philosophy doesn't always work. It particularly doesn't work when you already have a low interest rate, which we have, and we already have what we call malinvestment, money in weird places that, that, that aren't optimal for growth. Um, it, it may be Keynes's last Gas, and we may have to find a different economic doctrine. But it's remarkable um, what Americans can do uh, if, if they're supported and have opportunities rather than pandered to and sort of given weird tax breaks that they may not even want.
2: She is Amity Schley's board chair of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation, winner of the Hayek Prize, best selling author of both The Forgotten Man and New History of the Great Depression. And Great Society and New History picked them both up for uh, all the reasons you've just heard with her her scholarship. Amity Schles, thanks as always for joining us.
6: Appreciate it. Oh, thank you. I'm thrilled to be on your show.
0: The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof. Show. This is 60 Seconds of Sanity with Dan Proft.
2: The timer starts now. There is little disincentive for politicians to overreact in a pandemic because they can explain any measure, no matter how draconian, as necessary to save lives. After the fact, it is near impossible to disprove their contention. Lives were saved as a result of the actions they took. The CDC's infectious disease point man, Dr. Tony Fauci, has exacerbated this moral hazard by effectively declaring there is no such thing as an overreaction when it comes to combating COVID-19. Fauci is wrong. Shutting down the American economy, which Trump has thankfully resisted, would be an overreaction. Seizing private companies would be an overreaction. Suspending habeas corpus, which Cornell law professor Michael Dorff and reportedly some inside DOJ have advocated, would be an overreaction. Tapping into the cell phone data of those who have been infected would be an overreaction. Fauci is singularly focused on stopping the spread. He should be. That's his lane. But political leaders, starting with POTUS, must balance medical recommendations to save lives with saving livelihoods and protecting constitutional rights if we are to return to a free society once the virus's spread has subsided. Not that Fauci is wrong about uh, his professional judgment on infectious disease, even though we re, we uh, played uh, yesterday's program. His very different reaction in terms of uh, tone and urgency uh, and uh, support for uh, draconian measures, comparing his reaction to 2009 H1N1 to his reaction to 2020 COVID 19. And again, it's not to say that Fauci hasn't been uh, even-handed in some of his assessments of you know, what is possible, certainly more so than the D.C. press corps, but that's a low bar. For example, here's Tony Fauci with Mark Levin on Sunday night talking about the administration's overall response and uh, offering pretty high marks. Dr. Fauci, let me ask you a question. You've
0: been
1: doing this a long time. Have you ever seen this big of a coordinated response by an administration to to such a threat, a health threat? Well,
0: we've never had a threat like this and the coordinated response has been, uh, there are a number of adjectives to describe it, impressive, I think, is one of them. I mean, we're talking about all hands on deck, is that I, I, as one of many people on a team, I'm not the only person, since the beginning that we even recognized what this was, I have been devoting almost full time on this, almost full time. I'm down at the White House virtually every day with the task force. I'm connected by phone uh, throughout the day and into the night. When I say night, I'm talking 12, 1, 2 in the morning. I'm not the only one. There's a whole group of us that are doing that. It's every single
2: day. So, and look, uh, I'm not uh, suggesting that Fauci's leadership and expertise haven't been valuable. I'm just suggesting when you sort of set out there, particularly for the media jackals, that there's no such thing as an overreaction. Uh, You encourage overreactions. You give license to overreactions. And he should continue to operate in his lane and stay in his lane. This is Dan Proft.
0: This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. A lot of pundits and philosophers and cultural critics are wondering aloud what America will look like after the pandemic subsides. What about the question of uh, what is America's essential character and how does it present itself in this crisis? That's a question tackled in an interesting piece uh, in The National Interest, nationalinterest.org, Beware of Pandemic America, by James Holmes, who is the J.C. Wiley Chair of Maritime Strategy at the Naval War College and the author most recently of A Brief Guide to Maritime Strategy. And he joins us now. James Holmes, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it.
7: Hi Dan, uh, thanks for having me on.
2: yeah I lo- the hypothesis that uh, you posit and then develop with a little bit of uh, uh, an ancient Greek comparison uh the that uh, uh, the notion that uh, the more stress a particular society is under, the more its true character comes out and so just develop that for us.
7: Yeah, it's a, it comes out of a project we did about a, about a decade ago when we convened a, a conference and put together a book on uh, demographics and its impact on how big powers, great powers do things uh, uh, during times of demographic stress. So, I, not, not being an expert in contemporary demographics, I went back to the ancients and looked at uh, how demographic shocks uh, impacted Athens and Sparta, which, of course, fought the massive Peloponnesian War in the 5th century B.C., uh, to make a long story short, Sparta, very uh, very conservative society, very militaristic society, uh, suffered a, suffered an earth, earthquake that took down the vast majority of its military manpower, and yet, and yet, uh, it it became very conservative about managing it, those assets, and which which kind of makes sense if you think about it. If I if I have a certain amount of uh, assets, namely manpower, weapons, and what whatnot, and if I lose a lot of that, then that tends to make me very uh, cautious about how I use what I have left. However, the, on the other side the, the Athens, very viewing uh, direct democracy, part in part a model for our own society, uh, suffered a plague, something something that's uh, sort of reminiscent of what we're seeing right now during the opening phases of the Peloponnesian War and lost about literally about a third of the population died within about the space of, of, of a couple of years. And yet Athens, even though it loses all those resources, does not become cautious and conservative. it becomes more like itself. It becomes more enterprising. More freewheeling, more more daring, and so that 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 just struck me as being a, a very peculiar facet of how demographic uh, shocks impact society so, so what i tried to do
2: oh i'm sorry please. no no so so i mean am i am i getting the um and you you address this so i'll but i'll just set you up for it anyway uh am i am i getting that uh sparta is uh, some sort of approximation of china and athens is some sort of appro- approximation of the united states
7: yeah i think that, i think there's something to that i think, I think china and sparta are very different uh, sparta, sparta was ruled essentially by a military caste and china uh, China does not allow the the military that sort of uh, that sort of uh, latitude. To, under under Marxist doctrine, under Chinese communist doctrine, the the military and the state are one, and they both work directly for the party. But uh, but yeah, as far as being authoritarian versus uh, versus more liberal, yes, I I would make that comparison.
2: And so um uh, the the so the question, so you you sort of uh, develop because we have hindsight of a of fifteen hundred years um or 20, 2,500 years, actually, uh, to uh, look back at Sparta and Athens and talk about what their essential character was. Well, what's America's essential character in 2020, and what is it that uh, we're seeing on display that's reflective of that?
7: Yeah, well, I was I was concentrating mostly on how the United States has responded to attacks, especially surprise attacks over its history, and Just pointed out that uh, the diplomatic historians, uh, including some of the greats in the business, uh, Professor Mead down at Penn and uh, uh, and Professor uh, McDougall down at Penn and Professor Mead at Reed College, have have, have posited that there are certain schools of thought in the United States in in our strategic and political culture that can come to the fore depending on what is happening within the United States and especially outside the United States. Uh, Meade, Walter Russell Meade in particular said that uh, if you hit the United States, especially if it's a sucker punch, you tend to bring before to bring forward this uh, what he calls the Jacksonian school, the Jacksonian tradition based on Andrew Jackson, who of course was very bellicose and so forth, and that makes the United States a really really pugnacious power and difficult to deal with, as uh, the Imperial Japanese found out in 1941, as Saddam Hussein found out in 1990, and of course as how the uh, the Al Qaeda people found out in 2001. So. Hit us now, take advantage of our pandemic situation, and uh, you might be in a real trouble.
2: And do we also have a, a little bit of insight into the essential kind, character of the Chinese communists with how they covered up the spread of this virus in its early stages, allowing it to
7: metastasize? Yeah, I think that's 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 part of a long-standing a long-standing pattern. It's not just China either. I, mean, I think any authoritarian society really, really worries about being discredited in the eyes of its people, sparking a revolution and basically losing power. So that's there's that, and also there, China just has a, a pattern for a very long time. Uh, for example, if you look in the South China Sea. They always are very good at looking and finding out when the United States and other big powers are distracted with other things. And that's when they act to uh, build islands and seize islands from their neighbors and so forth. So, yeah, I think it, it fits the pattern.
2: And so for uh, for those who worry that China, Russia, Iran, a story about Iran uh, out last week, that they're working feverishly to advance their nuclear program while the world is consumed with dealing with the pandemic. And frankly, they don't seem too consumed. Uh, They're not consumed enough about dealing with its uh, expression in their country. But uh, that uh, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, America's erstwhile enemies are going to try and take advantage of America during this time. And you suggest uh, it might not work out uh, quite like they think
7: absolutely I, I was engaging in a little bit of messaging as, as well as you know going through analysis and presenting findings as well i hope i hope that they will uh, i hope they will think twice before making that mistake because uh this nation does have a, ha- a habit of uh, surprising people when they try, do try to take advantage and again especially if it looks like a treacherous blow like the uh, the japanese raid on pearl harbor or the the al-qaeda raid on uh, new york city uh
2: with with respect to uh, china you know on a 2030 plan to displace the United States as the world superpower Uh, that that may have hit a few uh, stumbling blocks over the last several years, including with the coronavirus. But um, I I wonder if uh, we're going to avoid the so-called Thucydides trap when it comes to the United States and China, that it it won't necessarily have to be war as one nation, one power tries to replace a, a preeminent power.
7: Yeah, I mean, that's a big question. And of course, the Thucydides trap is the notion put forth by uh, Professor Allison up at Harvard that uh, basically a rising power tends to fight uh, against a declining power or vice versa as they as they approach each other in power as they come to parity. The rising power is tempted to use force uh, in order to speed up its rise and the, de- and the declining power is... Uh, which in this case would be the United States is tempted to use force to try to consolidate his position. I'm not actually a, a big believer in this vicinities trap. I see, I can think of a lot of different counter examples in which that doesn't work out. Looking for back through history, it's a, uh, so I, I'm actually not, I'm not too fatalistic about that. sense. Well, uh, yeah,
2: well, 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 also, also, it, it's not clear who exactly the declining power is. I mean, two, three years indeed. ago, five years ago, everybody said it was America, we're going to be displaced manufacturing and energy and so on and so forth. And Chinese communists are going to finally realize the power of their population, just the raw volume of it. That hasn't happened in, in point of fact over the last uh, 36 months. They've been in full reverse, so it's not even clear who fits which role in that dichotomy.
7: Yeah, because I'd be really careful about believing uh, numbers that come out of China, whether it's about coronavirus, but especially about uh, GDP figures and so on and so forth. There's no, There's no oversight over that. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party has every, I mean, its 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 legitimacy as as the rulers of China depends on delivering that uh, that increasing standard of living. So they have every incentive to, to game the numbers, and they have uh, no oversight to prevent them from doing that. So, yeah, I think that. So I think we're probably at a time of a flux in China's rise and. Uh, I think you know, I actually think the United States will surprise people, and uh, I think we'll get our act back together.
2: Yeah, and it seems to me, like, as, you, as you're sort of indicating, the idea that this crisis reinforces, uh, the response reinforces society's basic character. So some of the dalliances with uh, curious ideas like open borders, it seems like uh, a- after this pandemic subsides and we start to take stock and, and reignite policy debates, that is going to have a lot less uh, of an audience than it had prior to this pandemic.
7: Well, crises do have a way of uh, a way of exposing uh, ideas that uh, make perfect sense in good good times. But uh, when you put them to the test of real, of the real world, sometimes, sometimes that tends to uh, clarify things. I think, I mean, if you, I mean, it's uh, all the way back to a a first day student studying international relations. The first thing you learn about is what is sovereignty? And the first, and and the, the basic tenet of sovereignty is control of your borders and, uh, regulating who, who comes and goes. So, so yeah, I think that uh, I think that's going to, that debate's going to be very fascinating to watch. I'm not saying you need to close your borders or any of that kind of stuff, but you do need to, to at least, uh, regulate who comes and goes.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's just, I, I think, yeah, one of the, my takeaways from your piece is this is just, it's just a, this is a clarifying event in so many ways. Wish it wouldn't happen this way, but it reminds us perhaps of some luxuries, Uh, that we were indulging that we can no longer afford. And, uh, you know, maybe that's an example of it. Uh, He is James Holmes, the J.C. Wiley Chair of Maritime Strategy at the Naval War College and the author most recently of A Brief Guide to Maritime Strategy. James Holmes, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it.
7: You bet, Dan. Take care. Grab a good
0: seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, just picking up on our discussion last segment with uh, James Holmes talking about uh, you know the essential character of a power like America comes out in crisis. But just what is that character? Uh, seems like there's multiple characteristics, characteristics in competition with one another. Understanding that it's never going to be uniform. But I want to go to this piece from the editor of Spiked, uh, Spiked Online. Uh, also the host of the Spiked Podcast. He's Brendan O'Neill. The luxury of apocalypticism. The real divide. Probably pick this up in our discussion uh, next hour. I mean, next segment with Heather McDonald from City Journal. But I just wanted to focus on this piece because I think it's that good. And it uh, speaks to this experience I had yesterday in uh, Hinsdale, which is in suburban Chicago. It's a very wealthy enclave. There was a woman going around Taking pictures of people outside, outdoors, who are not six feet apart. This is sort of somebody angling to be deputized by the forthcoming Stasi. If you haven't seen the lives of others, see it and you get a sense of uh, how ordinary citizens become instruments of the secret police. And I don't want to be, you know, East German, I don't want to go like over the top with the East Germany comparison, but. I think Brendan O'Neill's piece speaks to what I'm getting at to this woman being an example of the uh, performance apocalyptics out there. Uh, O'Neill writes, our skittish elites have been so baffled, infuriated, in fact, by our calm response to their hysterical warnings that they've invented pathologies to explain our unacceptable behavior denier. You're uh, you you do not agree with me on climate change and the existential threat it presents and that if we have to deindustrialize our economy in the next decade or it's the end of life on this planet. Denier. Not substantive discussion. In the past, writes O'Neill, it was hysteria that was seen as a malady of the mind. Now it's the reluctance to kowtow to hysteria, the preference for calm discussion over panic and dread. That's the malady. Today, it's those who prefer reason over rashness, whether on climate change or Brexit or COVID-19, I would add, who are judged to be disordered. According to the new elites, their apocalypticism is normal. While our calm, small-D democratic commitment to a political project, such as Brexit, or our desire to treat pollution as a practical problem, rather than a swirling, cloudy hint of nature's coming fury with man's hubris and destructiveness is Mad and deranged and in need of treatment. Their end times nervousness is good. Our faith and moral reason is bad. These are two fundamental categorizations that are clearly mutually exclusive and in competition to determine what is America's prevailing character. Don't you think? O'Neill goes on. The strange, fascinating tension between the apocalyptic uh, ellipticism of the intellectual and cultural elites and the skepticism of ordinary appeal is coming into play in the COVID-19 crisis, of course. Uh, He recognizes, as do I, as we have discussed on this show, that it's a real and pressing crisis, posing profound challenges from a public health perspective as well as an economic perspective, as well as, I would add, in America, a constitutional perspective in terms of protecting our individual constitutional rights and the separation of powers of our constitutionally envisioned branches of government making sure we don't uh, surrender the underpinnings of our free society during this crisis. Those are all real, serious challenges. No one disputes. Well, we don't dispute that here. And uh, Brendan O'Neill doesn't either. He writes of COVID-19, it requires seriousness and action to limit the number of deaths and to mitigate economic and social costs of both the disease itself and our strategies for dealing with it. But he adds COVID-19 has been folded into their the elites, the nervous elites, the apocalyptic elites, their narrative of horror into their permanent state of cultural distress. And this is making actually the task of facing it down even harder. Performative apocalypticism is what he calls it. Many governments seem to be driven less by reason, evidence-fueled strategy of limiting the spread of the disease and the disorganization of economic life than by an urge to be seen as taking action. They seem motivated more by an instinct to perform the role of warriors about apocalypse for the benefit of the dread-ridden cultural elites, rather than by the responsibility to behave as true moral leaders who might galvanize the public in a collective mission against illness and a concerted effort to protect economic life. A key problem with this performative apocalypticism is that it fails to think through the consequences of its actions. Just as, he adds, Greens rarely think about devastating consequences of their anti-growth agenda on underdeveloped parts of the world. And certainly in America, the Champagne Socialists are uninterested in having a conversation about what deindustrializing America would look like or how impractical it is to go to a fully renewable energy economy in on the time frame. They're suggesting it no matter how rich the subsidies they support. Per my 60 seconds of sanity earlier in the show, Brendan O'Neill writes, there is such a thing as doing too little and also such a thing as doing too much. Doing too little against COVID-19 would be perverse and nihilistic. We should devote a huge amount of resources to the protection of human life. But doing too much or acting under the pressure to act rather than under the aim of coherently fighting the disease and protecting people's livelihoods is potentially destructive, too, of course. And uh, this is what the Wall Street Journal meant when it opined last Friday. The key to uh, public health is economic health. You're not going to have a quality public health system if you don't have a robust economic system. He also um, goes on to address this language of war. And President Trump is using that metaphor as well. It uh, accentuates the idea this is not just an illness, but like, it's like a century ending, end days menace. And in, in all sorts of circles it's being interpreted as some sort of warning from you know mother earth gaia that most of these champagne socialists worship we cut to the heart of the apocalyptic mindset of modern elites when we understand that coronavirus from their perspective is an indictment of our way of life which is an actual headline from the washington post hmm it speaks to their pre-existing moral disorientation, their deep loss of faith in the human project itself. It is their downbeat cultural convictions that draws them to apocalypticism as surely as the light draws in moths. It isn't their but, but as Brendan O'Neill counters in indicting those who indict our way of life, it isn't their apocalypticism that captures the human urge to solve genuine problems. They're not interested in solving general problem, genuine problems. It is our anti-apocalypticism, our calmness, our insistence that resources and attention be devoted to genuine challenges without disrupting people's lives or the economic health of our societies unnecessarily. I want you to panic, they say, but we don't and we shouldn't. Apocalypticism is a luxury of the new elites for whom crises are often little more than opportunities for the expression of their decadent disdain for modern society. To the rest of us, apocalypticism is a profound problem. It spreads fear in our communities. It causes us to lose our jobs. It mitigates against economic growth. It harms democracy itself. Resisting the apocalypticism of the comfortable doom mongers who rule over us is unquestionably the first step to challenging COVID-19 and preserving society for the decades after this illness has wreaked its disgraceful impact. Excellent, excellent piece by Brendan O'Neill. I think he's got it distilled just about perfectly. This is the Dan Proft Show.
3: Make real forget about
0: You're listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And uh, Dr. Deborah Burks was on uh, the Today Show this morning. She was making a round on the morning show. She talked a little bit uh, earlier in the program about what she had to say at the Monday night briefing, which was important about uh, both modeling as well as pandemic planning. Uh, here's what she had to say in terms of uh, President Trump's willingness to listen when it comes to uh, advice from an infectious disease expert like herself. And actually, it was nice to hear what she had to say to the Today Show because she talked about the balancing that the press corps is uh, loath to talk about.
6: Are you confident that the president will listen to you, to Dr. Fauci, to Dr. Adams, the Surgeon General, if you were to say, look, we know it is a hard pill to swallow, so to speak, for the economy, but
5: to save lives, we have to continue this lockdown. Are you confident he would listen to that advice and take that advice? I am confident that the president has listened to and seen all of our data as it evolves. I think you can see that the president over these three weeks has been very focused on what the American people need, both economically and public health wise. And I think it's incumbent on every public health official to be looking at their data in a very granular way to understand who's at risk, who's at risk of hospitalization, who's at risk of mortality. How do we stop the spread and really move to a, a 21st century supercomputer? approach rather than a more generic slide rule-based approach.
2: And I would say a lot of what Dr. Burks had to say on the public health side is applicable on the economic health side. Uh, David Calhoun, the CEO of Boeing, Boeing mentioned prominently by President Trump at his Monday night briefing, uh, had uh, this to say with Maria Bartiromo this morning about uh, what needs to happen post-haste.
8: You know, the critical thing here is to get the airlines from a complete shutdown to the other side of recovery. Uh, allow them to keep their employees, allow them to get ready for a, a warm startup, and then we start moving forward with our economy. Um, so uh, for me, it's, it's really quite simple. I don't think it's long term money. I don't think it's, I, don't, I think this idea that we talk about it in long term equity terms is a, is a mistake. I think we simply have to get from here to there and then allow them to, to uh, restart their operations. Um, and I think it's critically important.
2: Well, we and uh, with respect to Calhoun's comments, he he talked more specifically about that liquidity crunch that's coming if um, there is not some action at the federal level. Uh, thus, the uh, the 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 need for something other than $35 million grants to the Kennedy Center. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined again by Heather McDonald. She is the contributing editor to City Journal and the author of the book, Diversity Delusion. Heather, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
9: Thanks for having me on, John. Great to be with you.
2: Well, um, you've been, um, uh, right, you've written a couple of pieces on the topic that uh, do what is uh, largely been considered unthinkable, although becoming more fashionable after Monday night's briefing by the president, and frankly, even some of the pronouncements from Andrew Cuomo. Trying to do a little bit of cost benefit analysis, you know, what are the implications of the policy choices we're making compared to alternatives?
9: Yes, and what I object to is the self righteousness on the part of the go, you know, there's no there's no limits to what we're gonna to do to shut down the economy side of the of the public health radicals because they present themselves as defenders of human compassion. And people that are concerned about the long-term effects, the possibility of a global depression, are portrayed as hard-hearted, greedy capitalists. That's simply a false dichotomy. It's a question of one compassion versus another compassion. The people who are being destroyed by these across-the-board, I think, way uh, overdone shutdowns are, are people often that are living week to week with every paycheck. They're the service workers that do not have the 401k retirements that cannot uh, shelter in place. They're not the knowledge workers that can go home and work on their computer. The economy is not some abstraction. It's not uh, evil capitalism. It is the very source of human flourishing. And when you shut it down, you are stunting lives. If if this turns into a global depression, we are going to see a loss of life and a loss of human potential that will dwarf anything that the coronavirus can do.
2: Yeah, well, uh, I we interviewed a gentleman named Houston Loper on our show yesterday. He's a, a uh, owns a bakery in Raleigh, North Carolina. He was in tears. Um, you know, I mean that the, the, yeah, it's difficult uh, sometimes for us to put the human face on the entrepreneur the small business owner who's who's as worried almost as much worried about his employees and their families as he is his own and his business but that's a real part of this conversation and i want to pick it up there because you touch on this your piece in spectator as well more with heather mcdonald she is contributing editor at city journal author of the book diversity delusion right after this
0: Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof., and this is The Dan Prof Show.
2: We're back with Heather McDonald. She's contributing editor at City Journal. She's the author of the book, Diversity Delusion. And, Heather, in your piece, uh, Consider the Cost, it's in uh, Spectator, spectator.us. You uh, focus in on the low-wage employees who are being hurt the most as compared to the elites that are, are some of those fanning the flames of panic.
9: Yeah, you know, the, the quote you had on earlier today from a big titan of business, good for him. You know, he's talking about the liquidity crisis but these broad brush fiscal stimulus are really not very relevant to that small entrepreneur right you know it's not it's not a liquidity crisis it's simply a i have no customer crisis uh and i'm going to let employees go are they going to come back here in new york city uh we see one store after another that's been sitting empty for for years at a time uh this could wipe out the remaining shreds of retail in New York city and other places as people gravitate even more to online ordering. Uh, and there's just, you know, the left thinks they're frankly, I, I I hate to go to sort of motive here, but it's becoming so apparent. They regard the economy with contempt. Uh, they're all too happy to think that, well, let's have a government takeover of it. They have no understanding. Uh, and they think that it, you know, it's just something that you can come in and, and and prop up with a whole lot of deficit spending. That's just not the case. It is so complicated. The webs of, of supply chains, of, of price mechanisms, there's no way that this huge $2 trillion deficit spending package can possibly put everything back together that is being – Mowed down as we speak.
2: Well, it's interesting.
9: Uh, and, it, and again, if yeah. we enter if we enter a long term depression, I mean that it's just I don't know if we've got the national character at this point any longer to go through what what happened in in uh, the nineteen twenties in this country.
2: Well, and it's interesting to note, as you say, that uh, Andrew Cuomo, who's uh, uh, been given relatively high marks for his handling of the crisis in New York State, with uh, New York State having 10 times as many cases as the next as the state with the next most cases. It's really remarkable. But even he yesterday at his daily briefing was talking about uh, New York forward. How do we get the economy going again? Can we let younger people go to work? He was asking these questions rhetorically without giving much in the way of an answer. But the fact that he's even posing those questions as cases are spiking in New York state sort of speaks, I think, to what you're saying.
6: Yeah.
9: Yeah, again, as you say, most people don't have a clue. Your, your, your baker that's in tears, what people, the risk that they take, the imagination that it takes to start something, to believe that your business is going to succeed against all the odds, to, to put your capital in play, uh, to provide jobs for human beings. Again, this is a profound human activity, and it is, it is viewed with contempt by progressives that are just as happy to have government take over things. And the government cannot run an economy. It has not a clue. It is too complex an, an issue. Obviously, there is a severe public health issue that we're living through. But I think that it should be much more targeted. We have to make sure that the, the heroes that are working in hospitals – uh, have the equipment that they need. That we are isolating the elderly, but the idea that we are all at risk from this uh, and need to be holed up, shutting down the economy, I think is is simply wrong. If you look at the data, it is not the case that you and I, of of you know, I, I'm 62, I'm 63. I don't, I, it doesn't scare me one bit. I'm healthy. But people younger than myself are at really a minuscule risk. Uh, and yet, you know, there's this sense of its virtue signaling uh, to, to be holed up and to think that, you know, you're at risk. And, and what, you know, I notice here in New York City, uh, my neighbors in my high rise, you know, again, we're all we're all at home working, Uh, and being very, very scrupulous about our social distancing. You know, somebody suggested that we should only ride an elevator one at a time uh, It's a 34-story building. But meanwhile, all these knowledge workers, these wealthy knowledge workers, assume that they will be able to order from Fresh Direct and get their groceries delivered or their Starbucks coffee. They have no idea the social distancing that's being practiced or not, uh, by the people that they count on to deliver them uh, their food and their luxury goods, if that started to break down, if it was announced that, well, to, to stop the spread of the virus, we're going to have to shut down the food supply chain, I think you may see a lot of people making a very different calculus. <laughs>
2: yeah. Then it's full hunger games, like with the snap of a fingers among uh, some of these individuals. I, I, I Because you know uh, this set so well, I just want you to speak to because the 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 dis the, the disconnect between sort of the common sense realism of the average American and the um, misanthropy of the the champagne socialist, as I would call them, the uh, the the wealthy knowledge worker, the 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 uh, the coastal elite.
9: Well, yes, uh, you know, there I'm. One would hope that the thing that the coronavirus would kill off would be political correctness, but there's no signs of that. You know, I think we're going to go back to trans rights and, and you know, these fanatical uh, distinctions about pronouns and, and the, the search for racism and, and sexism in this country, which has grown increasingly desperate. Uh, but, yes, they, they do think of themselves as superior and, uh, and certainly superior to Trump. Uh, you know, the, the media hostility of if, – if they think this is such a crisis – uh, that that puts our very national well-being at risk, and what they're referring to there is not the economic crisis, which I think does keep me up at night, but this this uh, this virus. Then we should all be unifying behind the president. Uh, this is not a time for partisan sniping, but but you know, in the middle of every single press conference, CNN and MSNBC are are tearing down everything he says. It's it's quite extraordinary.
2: She is Heather McDonald. She's a contributing editor at City Journal. She's the author of Diversity Delusion. Heather, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it.
3: Thanks for having me on, Jim. Take care.
0: The Dan Prof
2: Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Just some interesting takeaways from a friend of mine who's an emergency room doctor at a hospital in Chicagoland. Uh, he's got about a, a dozen takeaways so far with the spread of uh, COVID. Covid nineteen in Chicagoland and uh the uh, impact on you know frontline healthcare workers like himself and noteworthy, just the backdrop here, this is uh with uh the public stats being a little more than twelve hundred cases in Illinois and uh twelve deaths uh takeaways widespread in the community, many mild cases fine to go home, consistent with what we've seen basically nationally, right? 98%. Uh, and frankly, Mike Pence talking about, uh, uh, the other day on the, uh, the Sunday evening briefing, uh, nine and 10 who believe they had, it did not have it. But anyway, widespread in the community, many mild cases find to go home. Uh, few sick people needing to be admitted, few older people, very sick, uh, only testing those admitted, only testing those admitted. That's important. The uh, Department of Public Health in the state is very restrictive in testing. Uh, they're, uh, you're, you're having the uh, laboratory-developed tests come online in addition to uh, some of the self-swabbing and the uh, the testing that's being done at the mobile stations. That's just starting to come online. Uh, there is enough uh, P- uh, PPE for us at this particular hospital, personal protective equipment. Uh, Emergency room volumes are down, actually, for now. Most people getting the message to stay home. Uh, He expects the peak should be in the next few weeks in Illinois. Uh, This is interesting. I haven't heard it um, quite described like this. Uh, The illness seems to be prolonged. You feel like you're ill for two to three weeks. People on vents are recovering, but it's taking weeks. This is part of the management problem. They need vents, uh, ventilators, much more much longer than with other infections. So it's not, you know, it's sort of the down for a week with the flu standard. Uh, this uh, doctor is suggesting uh, a little bit longer and thus the need for those resources for a little bit longer. And so the management, allocation management of resources, that's a real thing. Uh, checking all of staff's temperatures upon entering a hospital starting today and uh, everybody, anybody with a fever is sent home. Uh, there's a few doctors and nurses quarantined at this particular hospital, but they're not sick. It's out of the abundance of caution, like, for example, many of the uh, members of Congress who self-quarantined out of an abundance of caution as well. And Just an interesting perspective from somebody who is actually uh, in the trenches in the field working uh, these cases and providing medical attention on a daily basis to people that are infected or are presenting and thus desiring to get tested and so forth. Um, so that's uh, just one example. But I thought uh, it would be worth recounting uh, as and, and, and that specific thing about the extension or the duration of the illness and thus the uh, the resource suck that the duration of the illness uh, in, imposes is, uh, is worth noting. This is Dan. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. So the Olympics have been postponed for a year, but uh, we can postpone our economic lives for a year. President Trump, per his briefing on Monday evening, uh, was quite sensitive to that. You can tell he's getting a little jumpy.
3: If you had a viable business in January, we are committed to ensuring the same is true in the coming weeks. In fact, we want to make it even better than it was before. And we're doing things to help in that regard. America will again and soon be open for business uh, very soon, a lot sooner than uh, three or four months that somebody was suggesting uh, lot sooner. We cannot let the cure be worse than the problem itself. We're not going to let the cure be worse than the problem.
2: And interestingly, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, who is dealing with by far the largest outbreak in the country. I mean, New York is 10x the next uh, highest state in terms of number of cases. Uh, he, he was so so signaling the same thing that he's got people working on the prospect of restarting the economy, too. He's worried about it.
10: Remember, you study the the numbers across uh, the countries that have been infected. The survival rate for those who uh, have been infected is like 98%, right? A lot of people get it, very few people die from it. So how do we start to calculate that in? We implemented New York pause, which stopped all the essential workers, et cetera, We have to start to think about New York forward. How do you restart or transition to a restart of the economy? And how do you dovetail that with a public health strategy? As you're identifying people who have had the virus and have resolved, can they start to go back to work? Can younger people start to go back to work? because uh, they're much more tolerant to the effect of the virus. Uh,
2: Particularly as uh, things stall on the Hill, at least they did yesterday, Larry Kudlow was on with Ed Henry about the Senate Republicans' aid package that was uh, being debated as Nancy Pelosi came over the top of their $1.8 trillion stimulus deal with a $2.5 trillion stimulus deal that included all kinds of progressive woke wish list items.
11: We can't shut in the economy. The economic cost to individuals is just too great. So let's see how this thing plays out. More testing is essential, and we're loading up with tests now. That's going to be a big help. But the president is right. The cure can't be worse than the disease, and we're going to have to make some difficult trade-offs. I'm not the spoke to, I don't want to get ahead of the story. I spoke to the president about this very subject late last evening. So we'll be looking at a number of different things. Let's give it another week. And you're optimistic well, you'll point, get
0: this deal in the Senate, the Senate today Real quick answer. Optimistic.
11: Either today or tomorrow, Ed. I just can't believe that the other side of the aisle won't help us on this. I just I just can't uh, just it's, it's beyond my head to know that they won't help us get through.
2: For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by James Capretta. He's a resident fellow and holds the. Ooh, Milton Friedman Chair at the American Enterprise Institute, that's a big chair to fill, where he studies healthcare, entitlement, and U.S. budget policy, as well as global trends in aging, health, and entitlement programs. James, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
8: You're welcome. Glad to be with you.
2: I wanted to begin with this piece that uh, you co-authored over at uh, realclearhealth.com with another colleague from the American Enterprise Institute. Thinking about the uninsured during this pandemic, some of the proposals that you had that uh, perhaps should be included in what the Politicians on the Hill are debating with respect to making sure the uninsured aren't disincentivized from getting testing, particularly if they're showing symptoms.
8: Yeah, no, I think it's very important at this point where there's obviously going to be a lot of economic dislocation. Many, many people are likely to lose their jobs in the coming weeks and months. And when they lose their jobs, they very frequently lose their health insurance, too. So there needs to be a plan in place to try to limit the number of people who become uninsured because when people are uninsured, they're less likely to use medical care and the lack of medical care could lead to additional people spreading the virus. So how do we do that? Well, we you, know, you need to make sure that there's an open season available for people so they can buy on the individual market. So normally you have to buy your products at the end of every calendar year. They need to open up that process every state. Some states are doing it now, but every state should do it, so that there's a nationwide open enrollment for individual coverage through probably May or so, so that everybody can get coverage if they need it when they lose their jobs. Uh, You also need to make sure that people, if they have employer coverage but haven't signed up for it, can do so. So employers ought to be making their plans available to people who are still employed, but maybe haven't signed up for the coverage that they're Firm has offered them. And then finally, you need to make sure that those states that didn't expand Medicaid have the option, and they should do it, to at least go to 100% of the poverty line to make sure people don't fall totally through the gaps and don't have any coverage options as this pandemic spreads.
2: And, uh, I mean, it's important what you say because it doesn't require a new program. It just requires flexibility within existing programs. And that's an important distinction where we were talking about, uh, for example, what's happening on the Hill where people are rushing to, you know, take advantage of the crisis.
8: I think that's a very important point that we don't have time to stand up a whole new thing. Uh, This is something that needs to be done in a matter of weeks, really, days and weeks, not months and years. If you know, you try to create a whole new program to cover the uninsured, you just don't have time to do that. So you have to build on the existing structure, expand it, make it more flexible, allow people to access things that are already there, and get them into coverage as best as fast as possible in the coming weeks, so that that doesn't become an impediment to the public health response that's also obviously quite necessary. By the way, there's a fourth component that I didn't mention, which is there are a lot of people, a lot of people in this country who are residing here without proper documentation. We we all know that. And they're ineligible for a lot of the subsidy structures that are available for getting coverage. But we don't want that to be also a problem both for themselves and others spreading the virus. And so we need to make sure they can get coverage too. So there needs to be some kind of program that says, please access care when you need it. Please get testing. Please make sure you're taking care of yourselves and your families. And we will backstop that by paying for the care through the a special fund that is going that goes directly to the medical care delivery.
2: Well, well, President Trump mentioned that. He was asked about that. I believe it was the Sunday evening briefing, and he made it clear. Maybe it was earlier Saturday. He made it clear that it was uh, covered, that uh, people in this country here illegally uh, their testing is covered.
8: Yes, that's a good start. But also if they need medical attention, uh, they shouldn't be reluctant to get it as well. So they need to take the next step to say, let's make sure that they can get care, And get removed, you know, that they themselves remove themselves from others, that they go into isolation, that they are under doctor's care so that they don't spread the virus unnecessarily as well.
2: There's a uh, debate going on. Uh, It's somewhat indicated by the questions, the uh, rhetorical questions Andrew Cuomo asked at his briefing yesterday about whether or not to segregate old from young. The uh, Israeli defense minister made a statement over the weekend that uh, one of the things that they found effective is segregating the old from the young. Um, but there, there are definitely some questions about it in terms of how what its efficacy could actually be long term or even medium term. Uh, what, what's your reaction to that as a, a prevention, a mitigation proposal?
8: Well, I, I think we need to hear from some of the epidemiologists and public health experts about whether they think that could stem the Spread of the, the virus in the, in the population in a way that it doesn't cause undue risk to everybody else. It's quite true that obviously the risks are heavily, heavily weighted toward people in an older demographic. Um, but that doesn't mean that younger people don't get terribly sick and could also overrun the health system by, you know, with large numbers of younger, sicker people ending up in emergency rooms and in the hospital system and uh, needing intensive care, perhaps obviously recovering. And, you know, God willing, hopefully would, but um, also overwhelming the system as well. So you have to kind of think through what, you know, that's a good strategy. But if that then means to normalcy for everybody else, does that also overrun the system?
2: Uh, Greg Mankiw, who is an econ professor at Harvard, as you know, and an interesting proposal for social insurance during the pandemic. Uh, he basically said, let's send every person a check for X dollars every month for the next N months. The idea of uh, a social insurance for an extended period of time to provide that stability directly, people know, and then you'll deal with the surtax on the back end as you as you and the rest of the economy recuperate over the next 12 months.
8: I think that could work. The simplest and best proposal, the one that I've seen that I think would work the best is the one that just tries to freeze in place all existing payroll for as long as possible. Right. So basically instead of allowing so many firms to get disrupted and perhaps destroyed in this process, save the firms and with it the payroll and, you know, try to resume some normalcy in three months.
2: He is James Capretta resident fellow who holds the uh, Milton Friedman chair, uncle Milt's chair at the American enterprise Institute where he studies health care, entitlement, U.S. budget policy, as well as global trends in aging, health, and retirement programs. James, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
8: You're welcome. Thanks for having me on.
0: Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Good question from a listener via email. As uh, Illinois Department of Revenue granted payment extensions for the balance of the 2019 income tax and the first quarter deposit for 2020, uh, at, like the Fed's granted extensions, uh, Governor Jellybelly, as of Sunday, said he was still evaluating whether or not to extend the April 15th deadline. Uh, and I don't believe he I don't believe he commented on it yesterday. Also, uh, on the Pelosi bill, just uh, more examples that we're talking about since we had that uh, discussion about uh, Democrats accusing Republicans of not doing enough for workers in the Senate GOP proposal. Uh, among additional highlights, in addition to what we spoke about earlier in the show, 300 million dollars for migration and refugee assistance. American worker related. Uh, in addition to that uh, $35 million grant for the Kennedy Center, $23 million grant to Howard University. The point is that you have particular interests. You, you know, I, you, you have everybody try to get something from their wish list back at home into the legislation. This, this is the log rolling that happens with everything. And again, I'm not suggesting that Republicans are immune from this either. But it is worth noting it's a bit different when you're going to hold up the important parts of what we actually need from this legislation in order to, uh, uh, in order to engage in this sort of log rolling. For uh, more on the health side of the topic now, we turn to Dr. Michael Lewis, who's board certified and a fellow at the American College of Preventative Medicine and American College of Nutrition. He's also the developer of the ESSENCE program, the nation's first and largest syndrome-based disease outbreak recognition system that is used by every health department across the United States and many countries around the world. Uh, He has also written a book about uh, uh, sports injuries and treatment of concussions and head injuries when called when brains collide. In addition to all that, he is a West Point grad who completed his postgraduate training at Walter Reed uh, and Johns Hopkins. And it was at Walter Reed's army Institute of research where he developed the essence program. So, Uh, There's a lot to cover with uh, this gentleman, uh, retired colonel and Dr. Michael Lewis. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
1: Hey, it's great to uh, be with
2: you. So let me ask you about the essence system, because, of course, one of the one of the issues and it was discussed at uh, the briefing last evening, President Trump's briefing about the pandemic preparedness, uh, number one, and then number two, about uh, tracking uh, all the data that we're trying to cobble together to get a real time picture of how the the virus is spreading and to inform the decisions that are being made. And really, the picture is quite incomplete. We have sort of top line data, but we don't have it broken out very well to really inform uh, at least on the uh, on the uh, the vector of severity, if not some of the others. Your, your response to that and, and then how your essence system uh, plays into this.
1: Well, the the essence system I designed um, actually back before even 9/11 happened, and it was really designed to look at early warnings, uh, outbreak of bioterrorism things such as anthrax. Um, and where we found the most utility is actually uh, we were able to predict or or recognize, I should say, uh, that there's a potential outbreak of, say, influenza. Uh, within one or two days, whereas the CDC back at the, at the time it was taking about six to eight weeks. So um, it was expanded after 9/11 to cover the entire Department of Defense, and subsequently the CDC and Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab have picked it up and really done a lot with it in the last 20 years. Where it has the it's it's a data data mining system. Hmm. And so but it's only as good as the data that goes into it.
2: Right. I want to go back to um, your experience with infectious disease as well as the system that you developed. And um, uh, give us a a bit of a comparison, contrast, if you will, because I know you were in Southeast Asia during the breakout of SARS in 2003. So you've seen this spread of uh, viruses before and and then you developed a system like an early warning system for them. Um, Give give us a comparison contrast in terms of, uh, number one, the severity of the outbreak, your assessment, and number two, uh, how uh, effective detection was this time around as compared to previous outbreaks.
1: Well, I think the ability to detect this was better this this time around than it was back in 2003. Um, But I think part of the issue uh, is been our access to this 24-hour news cycle. I mean, 2003, we had cell phones, but we didn't have this supercomputer in our hands and this 24-hour access. Um, so partly we're not aware of all the things that were going on behind the scenes like we are today. But on the other hand, this is a—it's a new virus, and so it's not the influenza. You know, influenza changes incrementally each year. So we, may, we have some ability to recognize it. And then there's occasionally it takes a big leap. Like in 1918, it took a big leap and it was a whole new virus. Uh, that's what we're facing now is this COVID-19 is a new virus and we don't as a population have any immune ability to react to it. So it is much more severe, and it has uh, it's more infectious and spreading quicker uh, than we saw in 2003. So we need to take it seriously, but I'm also worried about what are the long-term implications of our entire economy shutting down and the mm. incredible financial and emotional stress that's going to put on people.
2: And, and on the early warning infrastructure, uh, the essence system that you developed, uh, anything else, Uh, As you mentioned, I just sort of want to underscore it. Uh, It's only as good as the data you get in. So, for example, if you have uh, the Chinese communists not uh, sharing data, not alerting the world to an outbreak when they get uh, a sense of it, then um, there's no there's there's no early warning warning system that's going to pick that up.
1: No, and that's one of the issues you know that the WHO really needs to address, um, and the world needs to put pressure on countries like China that have issues where, you know, the biggest problem and the reason why it seems to always come out of China at least recently in, in the last couple of decades is just the, um, the close proximity of people and animals. These viruses generally come from the animal world and make a leap into humans when there's an incredibly close proximity, uh, such as what they call these wet markets, where if you've ever been to Asia and you've been to wet market, there's exotic foods and animals and people all crammed into one place. And it's not hard to imagine that these diseases would make a jump.
2: He is Dr. Michael Lewis, board certified and fellow at the American College of Preventative Medicine and American College of Nutrition, developer of the Essence Program, the nation's first and largest syndrome based disease outbreak recognition system used in every health department across the United States. Also, the author of the book about uh, sports injuries, particularly concussions, when brains collide. Dr. Lewis, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it.
1: My pleasure.
0: Dan Proft show on the Salem radio network.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Proft show. What are the things the government can do to provide direct financial relief as well as regulatory relief that will allow American families to access their own money to enhance their own financial relief well a couple of things that uh, are noteworthy from the Senate Republicans proposal in their 1.8 trillion dollar monstrosity the ability uh, the uh, the small business loans the 300 billion dollars in loans for small business concerns fewer than 500 employees large portion of the loans would be forgiven this is the key this is about them making payroll right keeping people employed keeping doors open keeping people employed keeping uh, doors open the loans would be forgiven, including p- payroll and comp costs, rent mortgage payments, utilities, debt service payments, uh, proportional to uh, how many employees the employee retained compared to their pre-COVID-19 levels. Uh, businesses can receive up to two and a half months worth of pro- payroll ca- costs, up to a $10 million cap. Uh, so that's important. And then the relaxation of regulations that we bandied about over the last couple of weeks, things like eliminating the penalty to access your Individual retirement account so that you can access your savings to help to provide during this crisis. Another uh, idea comes to us on the housing side from Kevin Erdman, who's a visiting fellow at the Mercatus Center. Want to talk to him about that now. Kevin Erdman, investment, he's also an economic research blogger at idiosyncraticwisk.com and the author of Shut Out How a Housing Shortage Caused the Great Recession and crippled our economy. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Um, Yeah, thanks for having me. You want to get cash to uh, the families that need it now, too. And the idea you have is uh, providing banks more discretion to make home equity loans and refinance mortgages. Why?
11: Yeah, uh, you know, since the crisis, uh, you know, uh, regulations about who can borrow, uh, especially on mortgages, have been tightened up, uh, you know, really to an extreme level. And and those regulations were put in place, you know, for systemic reasons, right? Because the, the idea was that a lot of people were getting mortgages that they couldn't handle and that that created this boom bust cycle in housing. Uh, and so the idea was sort of to, to, to uh, preemptively stop that sort of cycle from happening. Um, and so there's a lot of households that have just really been you know blocked from accessing home equity or from getting a purchase mortgage uh, or anything uh, like that you know in the in the decades since a lot of people that would have qualified for mortgages even before the boom uh, in the bubble happened and so there's a lot of households that are sitting on you know a, a mountain of home equity that aren't able to get access to it today that are probably you know decent credit risks um, and so really, it's sort of a, a freebie. It's a win-win. It, you know, it's a, it's home equity. It's a source of savings that people have. And we basically legislated it to be illiquid for the last decade. Uh, you know, we don't have those systemic issues right now. It's not like people are, are going to run out and, and bid up the housing stock or, or you know, they're, they, they're seeking liquidity right now because we're in the midst of a, of a pandemic, of, a, of an economic uh, contraction. And so all of those sort of risks. That sort of motivated these new regulations, you know, right now don't exist, and so really it would benefit everybody uh, to to make that form of savings liquid, even if temporarily, uh, to let people people and their banks uh, sort of make that decision on their own about. Who might have home equity that's that's available that they're able to pay back uh, when all of this is is over and done with? But don't, and, but
2: don't um, don't, we, don't we still have the same problem with Fannie and Freddie that we had prior to the, the financial crash in two thousand eight? Didn't we sort of re blow them up, and so doesn't that present the same moral hazard that it presented prior to two thousand eight?
11: Well, you know, really, uh, the the mortgage markets since the uh, crisis have just been a, totally different than anything that, that existed before the crisis. If you look at households, say, by FICO score, uh, you know, by credit score, uh, which ranges from, I don't know, like 350 up to maybe not close to 900 or something at the top end. Um, so for families that are for borrowers that have a credit score of like 760 and above, which is basically you know pretty pristine credit, Surprisingly, their their uh, rate of borrowing never really even declined um, come, uh, during and after the crisis, and in fact, they're borrowing more than ever now. Um, and uh, but FICO scores uh, below 760, your credit scores below 760, which includes you know the average scores maybe 700, 710. So this includes a lot of above average borrowers. Borrowing to all those uh, credit scores in those ranges has has just collapsed since the crisis and remains very low. I mean, it's probably less than half of what it ever would have been um,
0: before the crisis. When, uh, so we've really sort
2: of... Uh, I, uh, I, I, I'm just going to hold you there. I, we got a break, but when we come back, I want to pick up that discussion and also ask you about some of the other component parts of the uh, so-called stimulus uh, being bandied about on the Hill. Kevin Erdman, visiting Felton Mercatus Center, investment strategies and economic research blogger at IdiosyncraticWhisk.com, and author of Shut Out, how a housing shortage caused the Great Recession and crippled our economy. More with Kevin Erdman right after this.
0: Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
2: We're back with Kevin Erdman, visiting fellow at the Mercatus Center blogger at idiosyncraticwisp.com, author of Shut Out, How a Housing Shortage Caused the Great Recession and Crippled Our Economy. We were just talking about his uh, idea to uh, relax the uh, lending restrictions on banks with respect to home equity loans as well as uh, mortgage refinancing. And um, uh, I I wanted to, to, so we'll put that into the mix along with uh, what has actually been proposed, including the uh, elimination of penalty for early withdrawal from IRAs, as well as the uh, the loans that can be converted to grants for small businesses to keep employees on the payroll. What about uh, this this other key piece of it that has been much talked about and promoted by uh, Senate Republicans and Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, the direct uh, cash payments to households twelve hundred bucks per individual twenty four per twenty four hundred per couple plus a five hundred dollar kicker per child, and then you know it phases out as you go up uh, uh, up over a hundred grand. What, what do you think the impact of that will be, if if anything?
11: I'm not sure if I have an opinion one way or the other. I, I mean, I think at this point it's not unreasonable to, you know, effectively they're they're just sort of bringing cash from the future. You know, this whole thing is sort of creating a real shock in the economy, and and they're just really finding ways to bring cash from the future to today to sort of try to try to prevent. You know, we, we don't want to add a nominal shock uh to a real shock right so at least if people have a, a money to spend it it will sort of keep things humming as much as we can keep them humming um so you know i i think that th- those are reasonable uh, numbers to be talking about in a reasonable way to be doing it but of course my you know my proposal is a way to get cash into those communities and a way that the government you know in, in a way that uh, uh individuals can choose uh you know who needs or wants access to that cash the individuals that do it will be responsible for repaying it, um, and it's not, uh, uh, you know, it doesn't create an issue with public uh, debt levels.
2: Talking about uh, the global economy in which we all live, uh, the uh, news out today that uh, India's Prime Minister Modi issued a 21-day lockdown uh, ban from venturing out order uh, in his country. We spent a lot of time during the height of the uh, virus's spread in uh, Hubei province, talking about uh, supply chains of American companies in China, um, the, uh, the potential impact that uh, an, a shutdown of India will have on our ability to recover, even if we uh, uh, get to you know, the other side of that flattened curve in the next uh, couple of weeks.
11: Yeah, I, you know, I just, I don't have any insight on that at all. I mean, it, it's, you know, we're sort of in the strange situation, aren't we, where everything's sort of up in the air? Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, it seems like China's sort of coming out of this and and, and sort of, you know, restarting their, their economy. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's going to be each country sort of going through this in its own way. In a way, I think the United States sort of each state is going through this in its own uh, in its own way so I think it's going to be interesting to see in the next yeah uh, right. few
2: weeks and months well, that's what uh, uh, you know, yeah and Dr. Deborah Burks essentially said the same thing on the public health side at the Monday night briefing. you know every each state has its own its own curve right uh, New York yeah. state is, has one and and uh, it's different than Washington State different than California different than Rhode Island and so that perhaps um, uh, economically it's it's a, a similar it's a it's a parallel. I wanted to to also um, take your temperature on the impact of governments at at every level, not just the federal government. We're focused on the amount of money that's being spent as well as the Fed intervention. But uh, it's worth noting how uh, much of a hammering muni bonds are taking. And so that's really going to uh, limit the ability of uh, states in a considerable amount of financial distress prior to COVID-19's outbreak from borrowing to prop up things like unfunded pension, unfunded pensions, and not to mention make investments. So states that are not in particularly good financial health pre-virus, like Illinois, like New York, like Connecticut, like California, uh, and uh, the municipal governments underneath those states, um, that, that that has the potential to be a bit of a contagion, states that can't borrow to keep things afloat.
11: Yeah, and I think that's, you know, why it's, it's important to really Keep a perspective about monetary policy, especially. Uh, you know, a lot of people, I think, worry about all this money that the that the Federal Reserve is, is throwing into the system. Um, but uh, you know, th- a lot of those things. It, you know, as I said, we're, we're we're we have a real shock to the economy that's just unavoidable from the pandemic. Um, but uh, you know, to to let that shock change the amount of dollars we spend in the economy, uh, you know, we don't have to do that. To let that happen would really be to sort of throw salt in the wound, right? So so really part of what the Fed can do for us is at least stabilize the nominal level of spending. So even though a lot of, you know, terrible stuff is going on around us, if in aggregate the number of dollars flowing is still... Stable, then at least people can meet, meet, make their debt payments. At least these pension funds can stay um, solvent. And so, you know, a little bit of inflation in a situation like this is not the worst thing in the world. And I think really that's the last thing people need to worry about in terms of everything the Fed's doing to try to get us through this. Uh, if anything, inflation has been a little low over the last decade as we've been trying to recover from the financial crisis and it, you know if we got to three or four percent you know they haven't even been able to meet their two percent target right if we ha- if we happen to go to three or four percent that's far from the end of the world it's probably actually beneficial in in a situation like this
2: and this is uh sort of an underappreciated aspect of the debate over the uh stimulus bit, uh, package which is oh, oh by the way the fed needs the the treasury to replenish the exchange stabilization fund which provides that capital backstop and, and so part of that 1.8 billion is uh, 1.8 trillion is the 425 billion that the treasury needs to allocate to the fed for that exchange stabilization fund for what you're describing so that's where monetary and fiscal intersect
11: yeah yeah and then, you know so much of this is so confusing and i think really the fed has sort of made it a little more confusing than it needs to be in a lot of ways um, you know a lot of what they're doing is is sort of acting as an intermediary for banks to own treasuries effectively because they they, they, they own a large stock of treasuries that's really just uh, 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 reserves that the banks have, you know, have deposits that the banks basically send back to the Fed for the Fed to hold. Um, so in a lot of ways, there's, there's a lot of big numbers floating around that, that sort of could be eliminated on balance sheets and, and sort of not amount to much um, that sort of makes discussing this and figuring out what's happened uh, happening, you know, a lot more difficult. Um, but, you know, right now, the, you know, there's clearly a need for, for them to get money into all the cracks and crevices of the economy to to prevent, you know, people from from just running short of cash in addition to all the other problems we're having.
2: He is Kevin Erdman. He is visiting at the Mercatus Center, investment strategies and economic research blogger at com, and author of Shut Out, How a Housing Shortage Caused the Great Recession and Crippled Our Economy. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof. Show.
2: Welcome back to The Dan Prof Show. It looks like we have a question to answer, which is why are men more likely to die from COVID-19 than women? Uh, because they want to? Hi-o. No, uh, that's not it. But it is no, worth noting that uh, uh, men twice as likely to die from coronavirus as women, according to one expert. And this this bears out, actually, uh, uh, from more than one expert, uh, this is uh, from Italy. We're seeing the mortality in males seems to be twice in every age group that of females. Uh, Deborah Burke said that at a more recent, Doctor Deborah Burke said that at a recent White House daily briefing. And actually, there is uh, some look see at this because it turns out men and women are different. Their chromosomal makeup is different, thus their immune systems are different. On a series of experiments in uh, 2016 and 2017, a uh, Research team led by Dr. Stanley Perlman, who's a pediatric infectious disease specialist at the University of Iowa, uh, infected male and female mice uh, that caused severe acute respiratory syndrome, SARS, and also MERS. At every age, male mice were more susceptible to the infection than females. At the same time, the death rates of infected female mice shot up when their ovaries were removed or when they got drugs that suppressed the activity of the hormone estrogen. Uh, So to uh, Dr. Perlman, the research suggests strongly that there is something about estrogen that protects against the ravages of deadly coronaviruses and um, suspects that it's probably true for the new sars covid 19 virus as well. Uh, Why does estrogen protect women and how, Perlman asks? We'd like to know. It was just sort of identifying what appears to be a correlation but he uh, adds that it's hard to prove anything. Uh, and so more research is required. It's just interesting to note uh, as, <laughs> as an aside. Yeah, a little bit of levity in these times. Um, a tweet from uh, Ryan Kirk. This quarantine is affecting everyone in the workforce, but it especially sucks for men. We're losing a dollar for every 79 cents women are losing. Do you see what he did there? Hmm. But the the flip side is uh, with coronavirus, like with uh, workplace accidents, we're bearing the brunt of uh, the permanent elimination. Thanks again for joining us on another installment of the Dan Prof Show. I Hope you had fun. Hope you learned something and hope you're back tomorrow.
0: He's always got their real story. This is the Dan Proft Show.
2: You are fake news.